0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. It's wonderful to be praising God together and it's uh, a wonderful day for us as a church family. Much uh, to celebrate uh, Rachel's recommissioning, seeing her uh, heading back out uh, to that uh, wonderful work in Austria. We have the the Todds as um, Chris... Tufnell mentioned earlier back with us who we were sent from here now uh, about to start serving uh, just down the road in Derby it's brilliant to have you here Dave and Julia and uh, and it's Father's Day so uh, happy Father's Day to uh, the fathers here and those who are who are thinking of their fathers today uh, let me pray for us so we have now the privilege of uh, listening to the word of God together uh, hearing about the very ministry of Jesus Christ that we've been looking at in Luke's gospel so let's pray Father, God, thank you so much uh, for your word to us. We thank you that you are the God that we have just praised, the God who has indeed walked into this world wrapped in light, uh, wrapped in uh, goodness and life and freedom and joy and love. Uh, We thank you for who you are. Uh, We thank you for uh, who you are for us. Uh, We thank you for Jesus, uh, who is the King, uh, the Bridegroom, And so we pray, Father, that as we open uh, your word together now, that you would uh, reveal him again to us by your spirit, uh, that we may live for him. Amen. Well, please, uh, if you've uh, shut uh, your Bibles from uh, the earlier reading, uh, please open up again to Luke chapter 5, and we're uh, kicking off at verse 33. It's page 1033 of the church Bible. As we continue uh, this look in the early chapters, Of uh, Luke's gospel. Uh, Just as you're finding that, let me ask you this. What does your life say about Jesus? Uh, If those around you, those who know you, whether it be at work or in your family or friends, were to try and compile a picture of the one you follow, Jesus Christ, uh, from the way you think and the way you act, from the things that you fear perhaps, the things that you love, uh, what would they learn about the one you follow from your life? What does your life as a disciple, or perhaps our life together as a community of disciples, what does that tell others about the one we follow? I suspect all too often that the view formed by those who look in on a Christian's life or a Christian church is of dry, stale religion. That perhaps Christians and even maybe even Christ is outdated. It's a perception captured, uh, I think, brilliantly by an Australian band uh, by the name of Powderfinger, you probably haven't heard of them, uh, who sing in their song, JC, this line, Jesus Christ, uh, what name do you go by now? Time is passing and with the wind blows new ideas, but you are canned for life and your use-by date has faded. Uh, that is the perception of many of uh, the one we follow and perhaps us as followers as well. All too often the impression given by the Christian community is that we, are, we follow an old, joyless, lifeless idea. Or worse still, our life as disciples is perceived to be one of grim duty, of fearful rule-keeping. Christians are in this world the fun police. Uh, this is uh, the slang uh, word used in Australia for us, wowsers. Uh, those who uh, in any situation walk into that situation and sap all the life out of it. Or worse still, our life as disciples is perceived to be one of anxious avoidance. Christians are cocooned from life, real life, anxious to avoid anything that might contaminate us. Or worse, we're perceived as heartless religion. People of the book, not people of life. I remember being struck again by the lyric of another Antipodean songwriter, Neil Finn, who wrote this line, He is religion. He won't hear me when I cry for help. Uh, That is the perception of some of the Christian community. Uh, So let me ask you again, what does your life say about Jesus? I ask you this because as we've uh, walked our way through Luke's gospel in these weeks, the Spirit of God has been speaking the Word of God to us with the express purpose of introducing to us the real Jesus. Uh, Not how we might project him to others, Uh, Here in these pages we meet a man fully human as none before or since. A man so free, so full of life, that whatever pale and stale parody we or others may have of him, it is shattered when you meet him. Replaced by who he actually is, a man so full of life and, as C.S. Lewis puts it, drenched in joy that you simply cannot meet him and uh, go away unchanged. It is, as the great military leader Napoleon said of meeting Jesus in the pages of scripture, he said, everything about Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me, his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Here, everything is extraordinary. And so come and see this extraordinary one in the pages of Luke's gospel. Once again... Uh, it will be those, uh, as we saw last week, those who are opposed to him, the Pharisees in our passage, uh, and their questions towards Jesus that will help us see Jesus most clearly. Uh, as we look together in uh, Luke 5:33, if you were here last week, uh, the scene before us now is the exact same scene as last week. Uh, you'll remember, if you were here, that Jesus is feasting at the table of Levi, a tax collector. He is surrounded by tax collectors and other sinners Sinners are, yes, but now friends of Jesus. It is, as we saw, a wonderful picture of where the ministry of Jesus actually leads. Jesus and sinner at table together rejoicing. But it is, again, as we saw last week, a scene completely incongruous to the Pharisees. It doesn't add up. And so they indignantly asked uh, last week in verse 30, Why are you eating with sinners? It makes no sense to them. It's not how they imagine God to be. Their God is uh, distant and waiting for us to get our act together so that we can come to him. Uh, But here is the real God. The God who, while we were still a long way off, met us in his son and brought us home. Uh, But the Pharisees are not convinced. They press on with another question, the one before us in verse 33. A question again about this party scene. They say, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Now, what are you doing celebrating and partying and rejoicing at a moment like this? Well, Jesus' response tells us something wonderful about him and about those who follow him. Have a look. Why do your disciples keep feasting rather than fasting, they ask? Now, Jesus' answer is this. It's obvious, isn't it? I'm the bridegroom. That's why they're feasting. I am the one who comes to bring joy. That's who I am. Uh, John's uh, disciples and the Pharisees' disciples were, if you like, frequent fasters. They'd probably have a little card for it. Anxious to take their religion seriously. To sort of set the right tone that others might follow. To sort of set a high standard. Their relationship with God was maintained by this uh, grim, repetitive duty. Duty. Uh, There were rules to keep, and the more seriously you attended to those rules, the more assured you could feel of your relationship to God. Relationship with God was something you did. Uh, You just had to know the rules. And as we see them asking this question, this rule-keeping religion, how easy it is to slip into that ourselves, this idea of our relationship with God being one of rule-keeping We try to keep ourselves safe by establishing rules, rules about how to express our relationship with God. We we want a moral code, a code that's going to be, if you like, the scaffolding around which such a relationship can be protected. The more rules you have, the more sturdy the structure. And I suspect it's a temptation that uh, we know well and one that we hand on to our children from an early age. It's remarkable how many uh, children's Bibles that are published uh, uh, do this very thing, Whatever Bible story they're speaking of, it is boiled down to a rule. We're so easily assured by such teaching, aren't we? Give me the rule to follow. In the Bibles, our children read, uh, and even in the schools we send them to, to get good morals, that's what they need. And it continues even into adult Christian life, doesn't it? It can easily become a life of grim duty. We mine the Scriptures for rules. And when we find them, we try to keep them in the hope that, well, we'll pass the test. We love rules. Rules are impressive. They make us feel safe, but rules can't change hearts. And because rules so often fail us, how tempting it is to do what the Pharisees are doing here in this passage, to fearfully make and then follow new ones. The old rules aren't working. What do we do? Well, let's make some new ones. Let's patch some new rules onto the system. It's important to see at this point that uh, they were not disturbed by Jesus uh, failing to keep God's law. That's not what Jesus and his disciples were doing. They were failing to keep this new rule that the Pharisees had patched on to God's law. The Old Testament, in fact, commands fasting one day a year, the day of atonement, uh, the day of great sacrifice that God speaks of. Uh, There may be other points in the year where you may choose to fast, but there was only one day commanded. But the Pharisees uh, fearfully had added more rules to that system. They would fast up to twice a week, just to make sure that they were doing their religion right. It was a practice that made them feel safe, filled them with pride, but was utterly useless. And seeing Jesus ignore their new rules was deeply threatening to their authority. And so they asked, why do you keep feasting? It's time to fast. Jesus' response it's wonderful. Verse 34, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? It's as if Jesus has uh, taken them, the, these Pharisees lurking outside the party. It's an odd scene, isn't it? They're just sort of standing outside the, the house of Levi asking their question. He's, he's walked them into the room and he says, don't you see where you're at? Can't you see what's going on here? It's a, it's a party. Look around the room, there's tables, there's food, there's wine, there's music, there's the buzz of conversation, there's laughter, there's joy. This is a wedding party. No one fasts at a wedding party. Uh, This is a time for feasting. And he's right, isn't he? Wedding parties are great occasions. There's nothing like them. The, the, The atmosphere in a room at the end of a sort of a wedding service when family and friends are together celebrating that moment. Filled with joy, filled with uh, all sorts of fulfillment of expectations that have led up to that day. How good it is to be a guest at such an occasion. So he asked them, don't you see where you're at? And then even more pointedly, don't you see who has just arrived at the party? The groom. Now this, I think, is one of Jesus' most explicit claims to be God. God. Time and time again in the scriptures, it is the Lord who declares himself to be the bridegroom of his people. Perhaps most famously in Revelation 21, but it is everywhere. Now listen to this a wonderful declaration from your God in Isaiah 54. He says, your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, this isn't a time to fast. It's a wedding feast, God's wedding feast, and I am the groom. He is the bridegroom, the long-awaited bridegroom who has now arrived. It is time to feast. But it gets even better than that. Uh, There's nothing like uh, being a guest at a wedding, but uh, as you look around the room and you see the celebration and you wander over to that sort of board that they have at wedding receptions that has the sort of the table plan where you're going to sit. I don't know about your experience, but my experience usually is quite fearful at that point to see what table I've ended up on. And it's usually you've got the family, you've got the bridal table, you've got friends, you've got uh, less important friends and then you've got some others and then you've got the vicar. (laughs) Squashed near the toilet somewhere. (laughs) But not this time. In this wedding feast, you scan down the seating plan and you look for your name. You're looking at the outer tables first but not this time. There's your name and you can hardly believe it. You're on the bridal table (laughs) Because you and me, we are his bride. This magnificent groom is our husband who has vowed to us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's no wonder Jesus says you can't make people fast at a time like this. This is our wedding. He is stoked to be with us. It is as Isaiah 62 says, God rejoices over his bride. This is a time for joy and feasting. But he says, verse 35, a time will come. A time will come when the disciples will fast, when Jesus is betrayed and they deny knowing him and he is killed. There will come a time when these disciples will have no taste for food. Uh, But Jesus knows, as he says that, that that time coming soon, very soon, was the very way he could be with his bride. Not for a moment, not for a day, but forever forever. And so, yes, the day would come when they would fast, but it would be over in a moment. For soon, John's gospel tells us that their grief would be swallowed up by joy when the groom who had conquered death would return to them, promising that there would come a day when the wedding feast would begin again forever. So here's my question. Bride of Christ, for that is who we are. Is this the Jesus you follow? The bridegroom who loved us and gave himself for us, who rejoices over us in song, who is enthralled by your beauty, Psalm 45 says. And what does your life say about Jesus? Is he the bridegroom? Come to bring joy. And now we're going to come back in a little while, uh, just at the end, to the parable that Jesus tells on, uh, from verse 36 onwards. But for now, let's look at the second question that the Pharisees asked Jesus. It relates to two Sabbath incidents. In chapter 6, here's their question in chapter 6, verse 2. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Chapter 6, verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Again, uh, it's not that Jesus and his disciples are doing anything against God's law. Far from it. In fact, the Old Testament prescribed this very practice, encouraged it. That if you were journeying through a field, you could pick the heads of grain and rub them and eat them to sustain you on your journey. Uh, You couldn't bring harvest equipment. Uh, You couldn't, in other words, harvest another person's field for profit, but you could eat for life. It was an instruction given by a God who was utterly committed to the good of the other, who wanted to see the other flourish. And this was just a simple, uh, beautiful picture of that. But as they walk along, uh, we again have this strange situation. It's bizarre, don't you think? Here they are walking through the field, Jesus and his disciples, and there uh, up on the edge of the field are the Pharisees again, stalking them. Sort of like uh, those two Muppets, is it Stadler and Waldorf, uh, standing on the edge, just booing and hissing at everything that's happening. Uh, But far more sinister than Muppets. Because they're watching this simple scene for a reason. In their efforts, again, to take their religion seriously, they have made more new rules. And not so much this time about what you do, but what you don't do. You see, God's law forbade work on the Sabbath. Our Sabbath was for rest, for life, for enjoying uh, God, for expressing our dependence on him. And so what do you do if, uh, like the Pharisees, you want to take God's law seriously? Well, you want to make sure, don't you, that you don't work on the Sabbath. And so they ask, well, what's work? When it comes to harvesting, for instance, what's work? Well, perhaps if I have a John Deere tractor and I drive it through my neighbour's field and harvest it, that's probably work. Or if I've got a sickle and I go to the field with that, yes, but how about picking heads of grain on an afternoon's walk? Hmm, not sure. Or how about we avoid it just in case? Let's make this easier, in fact. Let's not just avoid it, let's make it a rule that we should avoid it. How tempting such an ethic again is, the ethic of avoidance. Now tell me, do you feel that temptation when it comes to your relationship with God to avoid things to be on the safe side? It isn't as though uh, the scriptures don't encourage uh, such an ethic at points. Uh, in an area like sexual immorality, the Bible is explicit on avoidance, there should be not a hint of it. Flee from sexual immorality, it says. Uh, But how easily we as Christians can live all of life in ever-reducing circles, avoiding life just to be on the safe side. And so we introduce rules of things to avoid, things that in and of themselves are not wrong, but avoiding them might just keep us safe. Uh, We do it with culture, we do it with media, we do it with education, you name it. But rather than just avoiding these things out of wisdom, uh, we do it out of fear. And so we make a rule by which we measure ourselves before God and even measure others. And it's the Sabbath that the Pharisees have tampered with here. Uh, Into this uh, wonderful God-given vessel to express our enjoyment of him, our dependence on him, our rest in him. They've poured, if you like, the cheap wine of their new rules. And rather than enrich the Sabbath, it's destroyed it, making it a day of fearful avoidance rather than joyful life. And so they ask, why are your disciples breaking our rules? And Jesus answers them in verse 3. Have you never read what David did? Don't you read your Bibles, Pharisees? When he and his companions were hungry, he entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, why does Jesus ask them if they know this story? It's not even a story about the Sabbath or even breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus wants them to know David, who was their king, God's anointed king. And as such, he had the ability and the authority to see through a rule. He knew that the rule about the temple bread, he knew that rule, but he knew that beyond the rules was the overall purpose of God's law, which was for life, that God was committed to life. And so he knew that the supervening rule was that he and his men should live. And Jesus says, you Pharisees should be learning from your Old Testament. That David got to the very heart of the will of God because he knew that people must live. And I, the son of man, as he has already declared himself to be, how much more clear do you think I am on the purposes of God? I am the anointed king whose reign will be forever. I too know God's purposes, that people should live. And Jesus is so serious about that purpose, so utterly committed to that cause, that he would eventually go to the cross and die in order that we may have life, and life to the full. Now, the point is made even clearer by the second Sabbath incident in verses 6 to 11. There, Jesus again is teaching, as is his focus in his ministry and there is a man with a withered hand there and was there an old testament law that said you couldn't heal on the sabbath of course not god is a god who heals and he will not be hemmed in by their heartless rules you see they've done it again they've made a new rule that said on the sabbath if somebody was in need if somebody needed help the only person you could help was the person at death's door where life was at stake otherwise couldn't do anything And so what do they do? Again, the Pharisees sitting in the peanut gallery with this poor man as their pawn, perhaps even as a trap for Jesus, seeing what Jesus will do. But Jesus isn't subject to their lifeless rules. When it comes to the Sabbath, our God is no minimalist. And so verse 8, have a look at it. Again, Luke has done this a number of times for us. The scene slows down completely. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Can you imagine that? This man standing in the middle of that synagogue, utterly exposed, I imagine embarrassed, frightened. Verse 9, Jesus looks around again. Can you imagine that scene? Staring each of these heartless voyeurs in the eyes and asking, is this what your rules have come to? You grubby mugs, as you will call them in Luke 11, you unmarked graves, you who lock away life. His question hangs in the air. Is the Sabbath, the the day of rest, the day of joy and life and peace and walking with your God, tell me, do you think that is a day for good or for evil? For saving life or destroying it? But there's no answer. They've got nothing but a rule to cling to. And so Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And his hand was completely restored. The Pharisees, we're told, are crazy mad with anger. And Matthew and Mark says that this is the point where they start to plot to kill Jesus. Why? Because the real Jesus has unveiled the real God, and he is nothing like the one they've created for themselves. He is not a God of fearful rule-keeping or anxious avoidance or heartless religion. He is the bridegroom. He is the king who has broken into this broken world proclaiming favour and bringing life. Now this is the real Jesus and his disciples are marked by joy and life to the full. And as we come to a close, uh, turning your eyes back to this parable that Jesus tells from 5 verse 36. Now see there that Jesus says by way of this parable that only a fool would want it any other way have a look 5 verse 36 i think what jesus is doing is he is taking us back to the wedding that he spoke of earlier except this time the focus is on wedding preparations he says no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it onto an old one if he does he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old and no one pours new wine into old wine skins if he does the new wine will burst and the skins will run uh, burst the skins and the wine will run out And the wineskins will be ruined. Now, the logic of uh, wedding preparations, if you've ever been part of one, especially preparations for the bride, is simple, well rehearsed in our world, isn't it? There's even a poem for it. Now, bring something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, and a silver sixpence in her shoe. That's the plan. All good luck charms for the bride to patch on to her dress. Charms to bring luck to sustain her marriage. Romantic notions, fun notions. Uh, But anyone who's been married for any more than five minutes will know that such vain gestures do nothing. And Jesus is saying here to the Pharisees that their preparations before their God are just as foolish. He says only a fool would prepare the way you are doing. They've approached God trying to bring both the old and the new. They've tried to patch on something new to God's gracious purposes for his people with their endless new rules. But they just don't match what God is doing in his world. They've turned up to the wedding feast in a sort of patchwork religious dress that they've sewn for themselves, but it is in no way fitting attire for the bride. And ironically, these new rules over time have become something old cherished, cherished traditions. They couldn't imagine living without. Religion is good at that, isn't it? Importing new rules and traditions and moving them to the Senate, we still do it. And by the time Jesus walks into their religious world, it is now antiquated and tired, a, a brittle system that is simply blown apart by the amazing word of grace that Jesus speaks. And so they turn up to the wedding with something new and yet something very old. And Jesus says, only a fool would do that. And as we close, here's the thing. Here is why Jesus is so spectacularly good. And do you know what preparations he makes to safeguard this relationship with his people, his bride? He says to us, here is what I need you to bring. Nothing. You see, the groom has made all the preparations. You need only come to him. Jesus, the anointed king of this world, the bridegroom says, come, And as he does so, you see in the scriptures that he has brought something radically new. You see, the promise of the gospel is that Jesus brings not some tatty old garment patched up, hoping his bride will look okay on the day. No, all the way through the scriptures, Zechariah 3, for instance, it says he rips off our filthy rags and he gives us rich new clothes. Revelation 19 says of the bride, that fine linen was given to her to wear. And the garment we're in standing before him on our wedding day Well, as the scriptures say, all who come to Christ have been clothed with Christ. In one sense, everything Jesus brings to us is very new, new to a world like ours. But at its root, what Jesus brings isn't new at all. God has been planning this wedding since the basement of time. And Luke's gospel keeps sounding that refrain for us. We've seen it in these five chapters, in Mary's song, in Zechariah's song, in the old man Simeon at the temple saying... Here is the day I've been waiting for. Even in his reference there in the genealogy to be the son of Adam, that's how long God's been planning it, since the first Adam. And today it's fulfilled. Jesus the bridegroom has arrived. Here at this feast there is no place for grim duty, anxious avoidance or heartless religion. You need only come and rejoice and live. Well, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, your old, old plan uh, to win your people back. Now we thank you that here at last in Jesus, uh, that promise is fulfilled. Father, help us to trust him completely, that he is the King, the Bridegroom who has come. Uh, help us to come to him. Now we pray this for his glory's sake. Amen.